Welcome to Greater Than Code, episode 111. I'm John Sowers, and I'm here with my co-host, Janelle Klein. Thanks, John. And I'm here with my co-host, Rain Hendricks. Thanks, Janelle. And I am here with my co-host, Jessica Kerr. Thanks, Rain. And I am here with our guest today, Tom Perry. Tom has been working as a transformation agent in software development for over 20 years. He has worked on teams at startup companies, large corporations, and the state and federal government. His background includes testing, development, project program management, agile coaching, mentoring, and training. As part of his involvement in the greater agile community, he led the Seattle East Side chapter of the APLN. Okay, what's the APLN? (laughs) The Agile Project Leadership Network as well as recently creating the Open Agile Management Conference in Seattle. He's a speaker and author on Agile topics in local and international forums. He wrote the book, The Little Book of Impediments, which is on LeanPub. And he has a blog. And Tom, we invited you on the show because I saw on your blog an article about thermodynamics of emotion. And we are super into systems, especially living systems and organizations on this podcast. So we wanted to ask you about that. But first... The question we always start with. Hey, John, will you do the question? What is your superpower and how did you acquire it? I talked to my wife about that. And she at first she said, I'm making hot toddies, which, you know, is a whole other story. But <laughs> in all honesty, you know, she said, you know, you've got an awful lot of books and you, you're, you're kind of a, one of these folks who, who is always kind of pushing himself to improve. And I looked around and I thought, yeah, you could be right, because indeed, in my office, it's piled high with books, and I'm always sort of looking for new ideas. Uh, but to be honest with you, I've always been kind of one of these guys who's on the periphery. I'm, I'm not one of those folks who's attracted to mainstream ideas. So my superpower may be eccentricity and the odd ideas. So, you know, I, it, it's a tough question to answer. So I went online, and you can take a test to find out what your superpower is. And it told me <laughs> that it was talking to animals. And, and that completely. All right. So, so guys, I, I, I do my best hang here. On, hang on. I have, I have one question. What do you do for a living? <laughs> well, you know, uh, I, uh, I do what, what folks call transformation work with organizations, which is a fancy way of saying management consulting, which is an even fancier way of saying that we come into organizations and try and help them change their processes, whether it's agile or some other method. So yeah, something like that. But you know what? I still don't think my mother understands what I do. So for animals, if uh, you construe it widely enough, you talk to some of them. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, actually, my, uh, my background is in animal behavior. I got my degree in college in something called ethology, which is the psychological study of animals. I spent a lot of time being uh, sort of a Jane Goodall, watching chimpanzees and polar bears and, and things like that. And that all stemmed from kind of a, an interest in uh, animal behavior that ha- has been with me for a long time. And it suited me well, actually, with management consulting, because when you want to see real animals in the wild, I think the boardroom is a good place to start. The other thing is, I think that there's an awful lot in terms of organization to be learned from, from animals. So if you're looking for self-organizing systems, self-organizing systems are very well represented in the animal kingdom. Think of insects, you know, like, like ants and animal herds, like uh, herds of elk, for example. Uh, all of these are e- examples of systems, leaderless systems, systems that, that, that self-organize in, in interesting ways. 
And all of that suggests to us patterns that we could reuse in our organization. So Mother Nature has been refining this notion of self-organization for millennia. And we can take advantage of that. We can use some of those simple rules that you see at play in animal systems, insect systems, in the boardroom and in organizations. Curiously enough, though, we, we tend to default to things like hierarchy really, really fast. There's a, a lot that we could talk about here. I would like to go back to the beginning and ask you how your study of animal psychology has helped you with humans. Well, the animal psychology was a lot about watching. So if you look at, at ethology and how it's done, ethology is all about taking notes and observing behavior. And so you spend a lot of time with a notepad looking at the way people or animals act. And ethology kind of treats the you know people and animals rather uniformly. So when I'm sitting in a room, uh, a lot of what my work is, is doing what we call discovery in organizations. So you come in before you're doing your big transformation. And the first question is, what are we doing here? Why am I here? Why do you need me? What's wrong with this system? And that background and observation has really stood me well, because uh, when I go in, I'm observing the organization as an animal, and I'm looking for certain kinds of behavior, and I'm keying in on certain ideas about what I think is wrong with the system, and I'm looking for evidence of that. So that kind of observation that kind of, of looking at the system as a whole, whether it's a herd or it's a boardroom full of executives, either way has served me very well. So in cultural anthropology, there's a method called participant observation, which is where mm -hmm. to gather qualitative data, you go and embed yourself inside a culture and participate intensely in the culture so that you can gain this intimate understanding of the culture through your participation. Is that a thing that you've done yourself, found yourself doing uh, in the consulting yeah. arrangements? I think there's an insider and outsider perspective there. So when I go in as a, an outside consultant, when I'm brought in, you know, as, as part of a change effort, then I'm definitely the outsider in the system. And it's very, very hard to get into the system. But then there have been other places, like when I worked at, at some companies, uh, when I worked for those companies, became an employee, you know, initially you have the outsider thing, but pretty soon you become part of the system. And now you're working within the system. And it's a very, very different perspective. It's much more of a long-term perspective that you have. You're being incorporated into the culture. And so when I'm a coach within a company, when I'm an employee, when I've been there for a while, it's very, very different then when I come in as sort of that paid hired gun outsider. And so they're both powerful perspectives. They're both very, very useful, but they're very, very different places to operate. And, and typically what I see is when you're the hired gun, you have the advantage of being sort of having this halo effect where people have brought you in to be the expert and they really trust you and they, they empower you with a lot of, well, attributes you may or may not actually have. And so they, they, they treat you like somebody who's, you know, this, this super-powered expert. And when you're an employee, they tend to treat you differently. When you're an employee, well, you're one of them. You don't have superpowers. They know you well. They see you coming. And it's different there. You don't have that sort of outsider's sort of superpower. But on the other hand, you understand the system. You're part of it. You see all the, the, the moving parts 
And so to some degree, you can behave in much more subtle ways in making change. Um, in other ways, it's much more difficult to make change because nobody's listening because you're part of the system. So it's kind of a catch-22. When you're on the inside, you can see all the gears and all the moving parts, and, and I think you have a much heightened perception of what's going on. But at the same time, it's much more difficult to be taken seriously sometimes uh, when you're trying to make change. Uh, when you're external, you don't see what's going on. You may be making the wrong call. But at the same time, they're, they're, they're paying, you know, large, large sums of money for your opinion. So it's, it's, it's really a, a, a contrast. So Jerry Weinberg talks about an interesting effect uh, for external consultants. And maybe you can tell me if you've noticed this, where when you're brought in by the manager or an executive or the board to affect some change, your, your job is actually just to make the person that hired you look good. And you can do that either by succeeding or by failing. If you succeed, then they look good because you succeeded. If you fail, then they look good because, look, this expensive consultant couldn't make it work. Clearly, I couldn't have been expected to do it. <laughs> yes. Uh, that's very true. There's definitely some, some legitimacy to that. Although, I have to say that in my experience, I haven't had a whole lot of sort of that going into fail kind of perspective. I haven't had somebody who's really looking for that. I've had folks that were looking for a rubber stamp. And so uh, oftentimes they want to be kind of legitimized or to have some process legitimized so that they can say, yes, we're agile now. Yes, we're doing safe now. You know, that sort of thing. We're using a given framework or process. That seems to be something that I have encountered a fair amount. And in fact, the folks who are genuinely kind of interested in meaningful change are a relative minority. I haven't been in the awkward position, at least not recently, of a situation where it was, you know, a matter of, of failing in order to make them look good. Did you just say that the people looking for genuine change are a minority? I think so. I just don't think they understand really what they're asking for. So oftentimes they'll say, yeah, we want Agile. And I really want to come back to them and say, well, Agile is about self-organization. Do you really understand what that implies? You know, that, that implies fundamentally that your organization needs to restructure itself and, and reorganize itself if you're really going to enable empowered, self-organizing teams. That means the role of managers is going to be called into question. That's going to change dramatically. That means the way that you do your HR practices, your compensation practices, that's going to change. You know, I mean, it's just a dramatic level of change that most people are completely unwilling to engage with for good reason. I mean, it's, it's far and beyond what they ever anticipated. Corporations are modern-day tyrannies. They're the most hierarchical structures on the face of the earth, next maybe only to militaries. And right. Agile... My understanding of Agile originally is that it was about empowering workers to uh -huh. self-determine, to make decisions, to communicate with each other, to organize in a way other than this corporate tyranny. I think this is what you're talking about. When you get a boss who wants to implement Agile, they don't want to change the fact that they're the boss. Exactly. In fact, one of the questions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's one of the questions, and I, I actually – tweeted this the other day, which is I, I almost want to start all my engagements with, if we're going to proceed, is it okay if the outcome is you're no longer the boss? And it's kind of a test question. 
And I imagine that most people in most large corporations, the answer would be hell no. I think another thing that plays into this is that in these modern structures, boss and manager have become conflated. They're different roles, but they're usually embodied in one person and they become conflated. Yeah, absolutely. The other thing that's happening here is that these organizations are, and, and the way we think about them, the way we interact with them is as mechanical systems. We try really, really hard to make a lot of the processes that we put in place for these people very rigid sort of widget processing kind of systems where we're going to pump in some inputs and get some outputs in as predictable a fashion as possible. And that's ignoring the fact that these are living systems. And as living systems, they don't work that way. Um, Living systems have uh, a lot of fuzziness to them. Uh, a lot of uncertainty in them. And if we could think about them that way, then we can take advantage of that. But we tend to fall into this sort of very Tayloristic, Henry Ford-style thinking about systems that hobbles us. And you see it in all of the frameworks that we try and apply today, whether it's it's Scrum or Safe or, or you know, Kanban. They all are basically these these very sort of mechanical efforts to apply a rigid system to something that's living, namely the organization. You said that Kanban, you, you mentioned a few of these things, but you specifically said Kanban, mm-hmm. and that's fascinating to me because Kanban came out of the Toyota way. And the Toyota yeah. way is diametrically opposed to Taylorism and Fordism. It's a diametrically opposed system of management that focuses on worker empowerment, on managing the system as a whole rather than moving towards targets and, and bottom lines focuses on uh-huh. increasing the variety available uh, to I, the workers. And so you're taking Kanban, which came out of the Toyota way, and you're trying to sh- shove it into this Taylor's model. And I think that what you're seeing is that Kanban works in a context. And when you strip it of that context and you place it in a new context, it has to change. And the way it yeah. changes may not be good. Yeah. I would agree with that very much. And I think, I think what happens when I think of when you see Kanban implemented, what you really see are Kanban boards where people are struggling to pump work through those Kanban boards as hard as they can. You know, that is pretty much where Kanban, you know, begins and ends is, is at that Kanban board, which unfortunately loses all of what you were talking about in terms of the Toyota Way and, you know, the respect for people and all the other pieces all sort of gets lost in this because, again, I think we tend to focus on the tools and the mechanics of the system, and we tend to lose the icky people stuff, you know, <laughs> the soft skills that tends to get lost uh, when, we, when we try and implement this stuff. And I think it's because we're fundamentally uncomfortable with that soft and squishy emotional living stuff that is what makes up so I can give you I can give you one really specific example of, of how Kanban has been sort of perverted and you mentioned it in Kanban in the Toyota way when do you build a car when someone buys a car work is pulled through the system by demand that's how Kanban works right when do you stock uh-huh. a shelf when it's empty like when, right. when and, do you and, build and stuff when there's demand said- for it um, and Tom just used the phrase, they want to pump work into that Kanban board, which is exactly the opposite of that pull. Yeah. And it turns out that pull works a lot better for supporting flows. Mm-hmm. 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 Absolutely. 
And I didn't really come to some of this realization until I had gone to the Thermodynamics of Emotion conference. And so it was a place where I was confronted with a lot of different ideas for the, kind of the first time. Uh, so it was a, it, the thermo, just to give a little explanation, that conference was basically a three-day symposium. It was organized by Willem Larson, and he brought together these really divergent people to talk about living systems. I didn't really understand that at the time. It just had this really fuzzy thermodynamics of emotion title that actually I had to be persuaded to to even go because I thought, God, that sounds really touchy-feely. But in the conference, basically, there were three different keynote speakers. There was a physicist who talked about flow. So he, this, this guy, Adrian Bahan, uh, has this new law of nature that he thinks he's discovered called the constructal law. So he talked about that. That was the first thing he talked that, that was presented. Then the next day, we were introduced to a dog trainer who was Kevin Behan. And Kevin talks about emotions and how emotions are transmitted through animals and people. Now, Adrian, or, or rather Kevin, has, has basically rejected many of the modern psychological notions of behaviorism and dominance. So again, this is another guy who's experimenting with kind of some wacky, unpopular ideas or new ideas that people are unfamiliar with. And then finally, the last day was a talk by a guy who was an expert, uh, Brent Stickley. He was an expert in Chinese medicine. Okay, so now we're way out in Wackoville. Okay. And so he's, you know, all of this stuff is stuff that myself as sort of a, a, a fairly intellectual type, I was actually a little uncomfortable with. You've got a physicist who's talking about a brand new law of nature he's discovered. All right. I mean, how likely is that? And then you've got this dog trainer who purports to have a theory that completely rejects all known theories of psychology. Okay, my background's in psychology. He's telling me that I don't know what I'm talking about. So I'm, I'm challenged by this guy. And then finally, there's Chinese medicine, which, look, I'm the son of a doctor, all right? And so I've never, ever taken Chinese medicine seriously. In fact, it, it, it was something that really through me because I was like, you cannot really seriously expect me to take this. Uh, you know, uh, I, I just, I, it was, it was more than I could handle. You're thinking that this is either woo or at least woo adjacent. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. 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 You know, this was, this was woo, woo and woo. This was really, really tough. And so, so going into it, uh, you know, I went as a, a kind of as a favor uh, to a friend, and I didn't know what to expect. And it turns out that this was one of those things where you hear ideas. Certainly on the first day, I heard ideas in what the physicist was talking about in terms of flow and how flow moves through living systems that I really liked. And as someone who's a, who, who spends his time looking at organizations and how they work, I loved it. Uh, you know, there were ideas there that I was like, I can run with this. I can start to apply mathematical precision to some of the things that we look for in organizations. So he was, he was positing that flow works to distribute information, dollars, and emotions 
in large systems, abstractly speaking, where you have things that, that move quickly in large pathways and things that move very, very slowly in slow pathways. He actually had mathematical proofs that talked about how this worked in different, in different living systems. And so it was very intriguing to see kind of his math for how flow works in different kinds of systems, inanimate systems and living systems, whether it's a river, a tree, or, you know, a large organization. He had proofs for what you could expect in terms of good flow and bad flow and that sort of thing, which was profoundly interesting. And then one other piece that's really important here is the audience. The audience was guys like me, just a couple of organizational (laughs) <laughs> and they were they were they were people who who were consultants. So you had a couple of consultants in the room. You had animal trackers. These were people who spend their time doing uh, tr- tracking, man tracking for escaped prisoners. I mean, hardcore animal trackers. And then you had people who were dog trainers and horse trainers. And then you had folks who were into Chinese medicine. So this was the most esoteric crowd I had ever sat in the middle of. And so at any given point, you could see part of the group, everybody be nodding their heads like, yeah, yeah, I get it. And you'd see stunned silence from, you know, some of the other folks because they had, they were completely out of their depth, right? And yet, the more you listen to this stuff, what it was was you were catching pieces of ideas. This wasn't like a conference where you're catching something that you've seen before. This isn't like, oh, yeah, this is release planning. I know how this works. This was something completely new that looked similar, that looked interesting, but you weren't quite sure what it was. And you weren't quite sure if you bought it or not, to be honest. And in fact, when you listen to people talk afterwards, they would use language that was very tentative and sounded very woo-woo, simply because they didn't have really words to put it all together. And that was one of the things that was a big outcome for me was when you're in a group of people who are trying to express new ideas, new ideas to them, the language comes out sounding very woo-woo because there's a lot of uncertainty and they're just trying to build the language. And I heard that in the animal trackers when they were trying to express, when they look at a footprint, they've been doing it long enough that they don't just understand, you know, which direction you're going, but they're looking at a footprint and saying, well, what's the emotional state of that animal? Is it panicked? Is it calm? Is it injured? And they were starting to posit things that started to verge on the mystical. So they would say, well, I can tell that that man needs to pee. That, that, that guy, is, he, he definitely needs to take a leak. And I can tell from his footprint. And stuff that, right, uh, it leaves you slack-jawed with wonder. You, you look at, you're like, no, 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 no. But, they, but they're, they're pushing the boundaries and trying to put a theory together to explain what they know and see. And so they're, they're trying to find the right language to say, I, I see this, I perceive this, and I'm trying to find the right words to put it together. But when they say it, it comes out sounding uncomfortable and difficult. And it's not that they don't know it, and it's not that they're not seeing something real, but they don't know how to articulate it. And so it comes out very woo-woo. So all of that was to say was this was uncomfortable space. This was, this was the kind of uh, uh, symposium where I was getting ideas, where I was listening to other people and definitely having a lot of that oh, I don't know. I don't know if I buy that at all. 
But at the same time, these people were experts. They were able to justify what they were talking about. So you were getting this mishmash of really strong ideas that you're like, yeah, you're onto something. I love that. And then in the next moment, they would take it someplace where you're like, God, I don't know if I can go there. And so we started with the physicist, and then we moved into the dog trainer. And, and this guy, uh, Kevin Behan, was one of the foremost dog trainers in the U.S., if not in the world. And so this guy knew his stuff, but he was basically doing a lot of rejecting of existing psychological notions about how emotions work. And one of the things that he was saying was that emotions are contagious. They flow through people and through systems and that we align ourselves according to certain appetites. And he started assigning sort of polarities to emotions. And he talked about emotions in terms of preyful emotions and predatory emotions or aspects. And he uses dogs as his metaphor for this because, of course, Dogs are one of those species that have adapted themselves so closely to us that if anything actually is receptive and understands our emotional state, it's probably animals like dogs, maybe horses, things like that. Animals that have been evolving very, very closely with us for a very long time. And of course, if you're a dog owner, you definitely understand that dogs, or at least have some hint that maybe dogs understand your own emotional state. When you're upset, they behave differently. When you're happy, they behave differently. Obviously, they understand some sort of behavioral interactions or signals from us. Whether you're willing to say those, those emotions are being transmitted to the dog back and forth between you and the dog. And then if you're willing to acknowledge that, if you're willing to go there, then you also have to acknowledge that I can transmit emotions between myself and other people, right? And you know this if you've worked in teams, that their powerful emotions can work their way through teams, and even subtle emotions can work their way through teams. And, you know, I, I know I've, I've been a, a team leader enough to know that I can come in, and if I'm having a bad day, or if I've just gotten beat up in a meeting and I walk into the team room, that can take the whole emotion in the room and just bring it down, you know, or if I'm keyed up, they know it and they get excited. That all happens without me necessarily walking into the room and saying, boy, I'm sad or boy, I'm happy. It's a lot of very subtle signals that are going on there that interplay or flow across the team. Well, when you start to look at organizations in a larger perspective, you see that there are things that emotions flow across larger groups as well. And in fact, that might have a lot to do with what we think of as alignment in organizations. Organizations that are well aligned are organizations that have emotion, good emotional flow. That is, all of our appetites are aligned in the same direction. We're all trying to obtain the same reward or obtain the same emotional high together. And when you're not well aligned, then you, you're working towards different emotional objectives. And so, again, this is the kind of stuff that I don't have a lot to back it up, okay? But this huh. is his theory. And this is the kind of thing that's like, oh, that's an interesting idea. I think there might be something there. Is it like those times when when as a team, you're you're working in a rhythm and you're working to to get something out and then you do and there's like this this release that you all share in as opposed to when we're each on our individual tasks and they like complete in different rhythms? I, I noticed that that there's just 
getting something done by myself doesn't have that like fulfillment that getting something done as a team or a pair does. Yeah, I think so. And I, I think, I think that there, you know, the, the more tightly that you can bring the group together in terms of personal space and in terms of the way you work together, whether it's, it's pairing up and pair programming, whether it is ceremonies like getting together in the morning uh, to check in with each other. One of the things that I've seen with, with high-performing teams is that the stand-up is not the rigid stand-up that we think of in typical scrum and other methods. The stand-up that I've seen on teams that are really close emotionally is uh, more akin to a fist fight. I mean, it's, it's, it's the kind of thing where these people are giving each other a hard time. They're joking. They're asking about their kids. They're very emotionally engaged with each other, as opposed to these rather mechanical stand-ups you have where it's, what did you do yesterday? What are you doing today? And what are your impediments? Next person, you know? And so a really good ceremony is one where you see a lot of personality, where you see a lot of emotion. And so on the, this, this particular team that I'm thinking of, people would get upset when they heard somebody was having a hard time with something, if the code was going slowly or if, if something wasn't working right, and they would challenge each other in ways that were emotional. They would react. They would express very visibly as opposed to teams that are fairly lifeless in their interaction where somebody can say something's going wrong or not coming along well or something like that, and you get almost no reaction. You know, oh, that's too bad. Boy, that sucks for you, man. And nobody really engages. So there is some element of emotional engagement when you're closer that I think makes a, a huge difference. So I am pretty into these interdisciplinary fields of study. So when I saw that you were coming on, I did some research, and this is all very interesting. Uh, so the sort of canonical example of one of these constructal systems is a river, right? Lots mm -hmm. of small flows lead into a larger flow, and the system yeah. over time changes its configuration to improve the quality of that flow. Mm -hmm. And under this constructal model, that's an example of the evolution of the river. Right. And there's right. also this idea of small flows leading to big flows, which is why it's called constructal, right? Mm -hmm. And it's sort of set to be sort of as the dual to fractal. Fractal mm -hmm. literally means breaking apart. And constructal literally means building up. And so if yeah. you look at fractal systems like lightning, lightning is one mm -hmm. big thing that splits off and splits off and splits off to become smaller things. And a river is a bunch of small things that all come together to become one large thing. So they're dual. They're the opposite mm -hmm. of each other. And it's interesting that Bejan is sort of his reputation in the physics community is sort of split. He's a very polarizing figure is what I've learned. There are people in the community that think that this is just woo. It's nonsense. It's not a theory with predictive power. It's, it's not a useful theory. But then there are people that think it's useful. And I mm -hmm. remember that Mandelbrot was first thought to be a charlatan. And then he was thought to be a salesperson. His book takes wide-ranging credit for a bunch of his discoveries that could have been attributed to other people, and then later on was the basis of this new th field of chaos theory that has taken over the world of math and physics. Mm -hmm. 
I really see that, and I think there's a certain kind of personality, and it may even be a, a prerequisite for somebody with a new idea. Adrian's construct a law. You're absolutely right. There are people, even I looked at it and went, uh, boy, you're really pushing the envelope. And when you read his book, there's some material that comes off as very arrogant. He's definitely taking credit for, you know, being the first person to see these things, yeah. even though if you kind of look around, you're like, whoa, dude. That is exactly Mandelbrot. Yeah. Right, right. And so you see that kind of behavior in the guy, and, and or you read it in his work, and, and, and seeing him, again, he's, he, he's very similar in the way he presents. And there's a part of you that, that can get kind of turned off by that. But I think it's almost a prerequisite for somebody who's got a new idea, because I've seen this in other, in other people who are espousing new ideas, and I can give a few examples. But these people almost had to have that kind of almost a tone deafness to criticism, this ability to, you know, a really strong belief in what they have. They're not the kind of people who shy away from taking credit for things. They're not the kind of people who shy away from, who are shy about, you know, their belief in, you know, a really strong belief in what they have. And it makes me wonder if that's not a prerequisite for somebody who's really pushing a new idea, because otherwise, let's face it, these guys are facing an incredible torrent of criticism. You know, there are a lot of people who want to tell you you're an idiot, that you've got it wrong. And in the face of that, I think it takes a fairly strong personality one that might even be, frankly, irritating to hang out with, that is is necessary to get these ideas across in the real world. So you, you mentioned that, actually, I think I mentioned that the laws, there are people that claim that there is not a lot of predictive power in these laws, and that is sort of a, a criteria that's used to judge new theories. Um, yeah, but is that the only thing that's useful? No. So here's an interesting thing. Thomas Kuhn wrote a book called The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, which is how do revolutions in science happen? And it challenged the then prevailing view that science happened through accumulation of facts and theories, that small advancements were made in certain directions. And that's how change in science happened. And what he argued is that there is an episodic model of scientific revolution where Science reaches some state of status quo, some state of sort of conceptual conformity and continuity that is then breached through this revolution. Jessica, to your point about is predictive power the only thing that matters in the book, Kuhn looks at the Copernican revolution. And one of the things he emphasized is that when his work first came about, it didn't offer more accurate predictions of the motion of the planets. It just offered a new model for existing observations. And that new model proved to be easier to build on. Well, it it later proved to be much easier to work with and to make better predictions. But at the time, it wasn't necessary for it to offer more predictive power or new predictions for it to be revolutionary. What it did offer was sort of simpler solutions that were easier to work with that offered the prospect of future development. You know, I, I think that's very true. I think the thing that, that is challenging for, I think there, there are a couple of things I thought about what, what, what Adrian is, is trying to do. Number one, it's early. So we don't know if this is a Copernican revolution or not. And we won't know for a while, right? Probably until, you know, most of us are dead. So he's, he's dealing with something that's, that's very new. And there are two things that I think we try and get out of this. One is predictive power, and the other is explanatory power. So on the one hand, people can say, well, it, it, it's not useful to us unless it's predictive. 
And certainly there's an element of that when I look at this and ask myself, how can I use it? If he's going to talk about principles of how flow can aggregate in certain ways, then I want to be able to use that to look at an organization and make some sort of prediction based on what I see that can tell those folks whether or not they're in trouble or how to improve. Okay, so that's a predictive thing I need to be able to do. On the other hand, there's the flip side, at least to me, which is uh, the explanatory, which is to say, I just need to be able to explain what, you know, interpret what I see and use this theory, use this model to help me articulate better for everyone what's happening. I don't have to predict anything. In fact, that may be you know that may be just setting the bar too high but if it if it can help me explain what's going on if i can if it can help me explain that you know your flow here here and here is suboptimal then i can at least give them a starting point for where they might work on improving things when it comes to the rate of change you know in terms of of scientific theory i can't i can't speak to that but I, I can say that looking at this new idea, uh, two of the criteria I use are, you know, what, what is its predictive power or utility and what is its explanatory utility? And, and if it ticks the box for either one of those, it's good. If it ticks the box for both, then it's really good. I think the, I mean, there's a couple of things swirling around in my head, but not really coming into focus, except for a, a comment that you had made earlier, Jess, about when you're working alone and you're you succeed in shipping something you, it's sort of like eh but when the team works on something larger and everyone completes at the same time you get sort of that big sort of collective sense of achievement and that that's something i've actually been thinking about a lot lately as a ways of taking those little individual micro wins and bringing them to the group and bringing them to your own awareness more effectively so that you can be more aware of like, cause if something like you finish a small thing on Tuesday afternoon, by Friday, you've forgotten that you achieved that thing and like ways of reminding yourself of the things that you are achieving and or sharing those with the team so that everyone can sort of share in everyone's little micro successes without everyone having to be working on a single thing that's achieving one giant, you know, goal for the team. I'm wondering if you want to talk a little bit more about that. That is really useful. That, yeah, that's something I could use this week. <sighs> also, you got to keep that endorphin drip going, right? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> you know, I, one could argue that breaking things down smaller, whether it's, you know, our interactions or the work we do, um, has a lot of merit and certainly uh, is something that we spend a lot of time trying to do. But um, uh, I'm sure there's a lot uh, of subtlety hiding there. Ooh. Oh, yeah, because if you want to break stuff down, you have to have ways of putting it together. And that means that if we want to break our tasks down smaller, which often improves flow, we need ways of bringing those accomplishments back together. Yeah. 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 So I, I have a fundamental problem with this concept of breaking things down, or at least the way that it's usually usually portrayed or usually done, which is that when you think about breaking things down, what you usually think about is there are these objects in the system and they have these connections. And what we want to do is sever these connections so that we can talk about these objects in isolation. And in many systems, especially complex systems, the, the connections are the things where the complexity lives. The okay. connections are the interesting parts of the system. And so if you're breaking things down by removing those connections or ignoring those connections, then you're ignoring a lot of what is interesting about that system. 
Oh, I just meant breaking tasks down, like things that we need to do, because the smaller the goal, the easier it flows through the system. But but don't tasks relate to each other? Hopefully they're pulling on each other. And doesn't the idea of designing tasks such that they're independent limit your conception of the work to be done to things that can be broken apart? I didn't say they were independent. Well, but we're talking about breaking down tasks, right? Which means that they have to be able to be done separately. Or in sequence. I mean, in this case, I want to update the documentation. I can break that piece down into finding a working example and digging into the details of what I need to put into the documentation versus writing it versus outlining it. If I try to do this as one chunk of work, it doesn't go anywhere. I think one way of putting this, and I've seen this play out in companies, um, is that context really matters, especially when you're trying to work on, you know, when you're given work from a much larger system, you're given a small piece of it. And that can happen where, you know, you have epics that are broken down into features and features that are broken down into stories and stories that are broken down into tasks. And as somebody on a team, I may not see that task until it comes directly to me, and I may not have seen that evolution of how it was broken down into features and how it was broken down into stories. And I may not have that overall. Right, right. You may not see that. And in that case, then I think you're exactly right. That is detrimental. You know, if you can't under, if you don't have the big picture, if you don't understand why or how that task relates to other tasks, then you can certainly execute on it, but you're likely to miss important things. And so that's why I think that some of the practices that have become popular in recent years are helpful, things like big room planning, where you pull all of the teams together to work on this stuff, you know, in, in the same room at the same time, where you have the leadership team giving context for uh, what they're trying to accomplish and what their goals are and using various mechanisms to share their excitement and their ideas so that the teams get that. And so this goes back to that sort of sharing emotion and appetites. If you can get everybody fired up, if you can get everybody aligned to what those pieces are, then you're less likely to run into situations where people are operating in isolation and don't understand why they're doing stuff and end up doing suboptimal stuff. So those large-scale ceremonies, I think, have been very helpful. I think there's still lots of room for improvement there, but the fundamental purpose there, I think, is to align or create flow across large groups. And it's also a, a great example of broad band message communication. So large flows, and I guess it would be broken down into smaller flows, but it's, it's basically when you do big room planning, that's a broadcast mechanism where you're broadcasting ideas very rapidly across a large number of people, as opposed to team planning, which is a smaller pipeline of single stories being broadcast across a, a team all the way down to task planning which becomes almost an individual activity. So you see the information going through large pipes down to smaller pipes and vice versa, I imagine. I wanted to go back to something you said a while ago that just caught my attention. The importance of alignment in appetite. And I was thinking about emotional flow as a vector. All these individuals that are flowing a certain direction and how they 
influence one another in their own energy shifts and interaction. And that there's this alignment in terms of this shared resonance and in direction in terms that you described in terms of appetite. And I was wondering if bringing this back to some concrete examples of how do you see dissonance in appetite? How does that manifest in an organization, in a team where you see kind of that conflict arise in the group? What does that look like? One idea that comes to mind is where you may have some folks on the team who are very technically oriented and are really fascinated with architecture. So I've had folks who who will build very, very, you know, are, are really have a, a, a strong passion for building beautiful systems. And I mean that when I say beautiful systems, I mean architecturally, they want to use interesting technology and they want to use perhaps design patterns that are something they've, they've read about recently and find fascinating. And these people are very engaged in sort of taking that design and expressing that design. And these are people who love that. Then there are other people, there may be on the same team, in fact, people who are more oriented around the problem space, the, the domain, the, the, the customer's problem, you know, so, so they may be more oriented around solving uh, a customer's problem and less interested in the design of the system itself. Okay, and those two groups can certainly be at loggerheads because the design folks are going to try and put that first in terms of the conversation. And you see this a lot, actually. Actually, let me step back because now that I think about it, where I see the biggest conflict oftentimes is kind of a product conflict versus sort of an architecture or health of the system conflict. And what I'm thinking of, and I, this is this is just riffing on this stuff, but what I'm thinking of are teams that struggle with maintenance and refactoring of the system versus, and it can be on the same team, versus product people who are saying, I don't care about maintenance. I have this bright, shiny thing that the customer has asked for, and we must have it now, and that is the most important thing. So you get this tension between the two groups on the team where one side is saying, we've got to give the features, those are the features that make us money. Nobody cares. Customers don't care about refactoring. And you have these other people on the team who are like, without putting oil in the engine, it's going to slow us down and eventually break. And you see that kind of tension all the time. That's very, very common. Fast versus smooth. Yeah. You know, maybe that's a, a, a good, good example. There's probably others. This reminds me of Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. Have uh-huh. you read the book? <laughs> we have a book club that we have scheduled, I, I think, for January that we're going to talk about this. I, I read it uh, very recently. And one of the interesting things in the book is this idea of these these two contrasting paradigms. And it's a different game optimization. It's a different appetite. Yes. And there's an inherent dissonance in these paradigms of these two different ways of looking at the world. They both have this appetite for a certain type of beautiful. Uh And the way that we unify these two sides is quality is what, what is the quality of this, of the system as a whole that we're ultimately aiming for that brings these two paradigms together such that our arrows 
our appetites can be aligned. So I'm wondering what kind of things have you done to create that kind of emotional alignment between these two distinctive groups? Boy, that's a tough one. I think there are times it's very hard to get this uh, to work out right. I think you can be very thoughtful about it, or you can take uh, advantage of opportunities. And I'll give you an, an example. I was working on a payment processing team, and we deployed a bug to production. And in payment processing, that can be pretty disastrous, because when you deploy something to production that affects dollars and cents, the numbers can add up with absolutely horrifying speed. So once you put the decimal place you know, in the wrong spot, all of a sudden, if you're talking online transaction processing, things can go sideways really, really fast. So we had that happen. And it cost the company or threatened to cost the company quite a bit of money. And so as I pulled the team together afterwards and we, you know, we were, there were no happy faces. This was a very powerful event where we all were like, my God, we could be fired. And as, as we're sitting there, and we go around and we were, we're diagnosing the problem and we're asking, how did this happen? And we came into this kind of this conversation of, well, we should have done this thing long ago. We should have we should have written tests for this portion of the code long ago. And that was the, the architect saying this is, you know, we, we knew how to do this. We should have done this. Why didn't we do this? And then you had the product people on the other side saying, but, you know, what's it giving me? And at some point, somebody perked up and said, well, they wouldn't let us do it. They wouldn't let us do it. And, and, and I looked around, and I turned around, and I looked at the product manager, and I said, Can, would you let us do this? Would you let us do this now? And he was like, I will pay you extra to spend the next six months to make this right. I don't ever want to go through this again. And it was this kind of, of powerful, you know, we were all very down but it was that event where, where somebody said, they won't let us do it. And we pointed around and said, can we do it? And the answer was, not yes, but hell yes. And then what happened after that was the team agreed that everyone on the team would focus on writing tests together, the whole team, developers, it didn't matter who you were, even I was writing tests, as long as it took to get that part of the system covered so that this event would never happen again. And everybody walked out of that I mean, powerfully aligned. And it was the kind of thing where that's exactly what we did. We sat down and we wrote tests day in, day out for the next three or four months in order to get that part of the system up. And never was there any question about alignment in terms of should we do this new feature, this bright, shiny thing, these other compelling reasons have come up. None of that came up. Everybody knew exactly what they were doing. So I think that's that's probably the best example I can give where I have to admit, I was taking advantage of an opportunity that came along, but um, it it led to the right behavior. Can I mention a, a couple of ideas from complexity theory that can help explain this phenomena that might be interesting? One is path dependence, which is the idea that a single event can alter a complex system in a way that persists for a long time. And this is due to feedback, and mm-hmm. the other is the idea that complex systems have interconnected parts. And as that interconnectivity reaches a critical point, interconnectivity in general helps the system become more robust. But also paradoxically, as it reaches a certain point, you get to what's called a critical point, 
where an event can cause a phase transition in the system where it becomes not like it was before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that. I'd also, I, I'd like to go back to what Janelle was mentioning, uh, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. The other theme that I took away from that book was a struggle to define what quality is. And it's this intangible thing that, that that's wrestled with throughout the book from a variety of perspectives. And I think it's something that at the end of the day, I've come to realize that it's, you know, I, I think we, we try and nail it down uh, as, you know, what is quality and what does it mean for something to have quality, either from a purely mechanical perspective or from a, a more of a, a holistic emotional perspective. And I think the answer may be that quality is actually an emotion, that quality is, is an emotional attribute, that it, it is not something that is uh, a tangible, objective sort of thing, but more a feeling. So to me, uh, in that particular case, that was an emotional reaction that we had. And one of the ways that we need to start talking about quality within our organizations is to talk in terms of quality being a feeling. That also goes back to the conversations about alignments and appetites and that sort of thing. So this is starting now. We're, now we're getting into the woo terms, you know, now we're, you know, but it's, <laughs> But this is the thing that I think I'm, you know, speaking for myself, at least, I'm starting to become more comfortable with it because I think I need to. I think we're missing uh, a critical element in the way we, we have these conversations where we need to find the right language to talk about feelings and emotions and appetites. And I guess this is one of the reasons why I think us being able to have those conversations, I think, to some extent, requires us burning all the words that have baggage that means other things. And going back to this kind of ethereal space where meaning is still in this place of kind of a musical interpretation and then reinventing the words we use in that space. But I think we need to do it in a way that doesn't collide with our existing schemas that have a lot of existing baggage around them. So I recently uh, did this uh, talk. I'm at ArtConf right now on anatomy of culture And I took all this science research I've been doing for years and put together software models to explain the dynamics of human behavior as predictably irrational. And I broke down the models in terms of culture as an emergent magnet that emerges from the interaction of all the humans and broke down the humans into these little, you know, machines. But essentially it creates a a useful, predictable framework for understanding the dynamics of emotional flow across human systems. And what I heard you describe with this alignment of appetite is all these people were kind of in the room and there was this tension and this disagreement and the focus was shifted such that all the people started looking at this canvas on the wall and incorporating their dreams and the things that they were seeing as part of this canvas that became this artifact, this dream, this vision that belonged to everyone to take a hand in kind of creating and owning. And once everyone had this shared appetite for the same dream, they had resonance with that same vision, same dream that they were putting together as a whole, then everyone became engaged in 
how do we do that? And and that's where the dissonance melted away and all this power came from essentially alignment of appetite toward the shared resonance. Janelle, you said a magnet. Is that because magnets are structures where the the like the micro the microcrystalline structure is aligned in the same direction? In this case, I was trying to break down the common patterns that I've seen at all layers of abstraction. And so I'm looking at magnet in a functional abstract sense. So I've got two magnets, one of them being a tension magnet and the other one being a resonance magnet. An attention magnet operates with different seeking and a resonance magnet operates with similarity seeking. And so what I started doing is looking at the push pull of emotions as kind of a baseline and then looked at if we imagine that humans have this capability to operate in one magnet or another. So your brain is like a shape toy brain that's looking out for shapes in the world, right? And we can look for similarities and we can look for differences. And when we're in one mode or another, it's like where we can be in survival mode, which is often relief seeking mode, which is associated with our tension magnet where we're looking for differences. And then we've also got this resonance mode where we're oriented toward, you know, finding similarities, finding resonance, finding togetherness and we end up in this beauty seeking mode. And so when I think about what is this gravity that brings people together, what is this, this, the quality of quality, I think it's beautiful. And I think it's probably beautiful in a mathematical definition of mathematical harmony, almost of that resonance seeking mode. I feel like quality is like we use the term emotion to mean things that in this sort of new world, new paradigm, emotion starts to mean something very different. Um, and I feel like we should bag the word emotion in this context just because it's inadequate to describe this sort of new way of seeing the dynamics. I feel like we need new word. I like the word flow. I think it's a good word. I like what you're doing with that. And I, I tried something similar to use a model of, of sort of batteries. So batteries that store up and release uh, emotions or or tension. So I love the magnet. I love the magnet idea. That's that's really cool. And I think it's reflective of our attempt to try and find some metaphor or language to talk about how emotions work or how we can create uh, some sort of alignment there. And I struggle with that. I struggle with that. That's really challenging for me. I have a hard time if I'm honest, number one, expressing a, a meaningful emotional model, and number two, trying to find a way to put it into useful practice. I think that's relatively unexplored territory, at least for guys like me. So my background is in poetry and music. And so I have like this past life as a singer-songwriter. And so as I got into software, that turned into this really kind of trippy, cool skill in that I could take all of these feeling-oriented kinds of things and look inside myself and and first find 
translate these ideas to like poetic shapes of like, this is like a tree. <laughs> and, uh-huh. and, and then I, I could work my way from poetic shapes to more functional forms and things that I could actually model in software constructs. And what I found in this journey of working toward reifying all these things in software is all models are wrong. Some are useful. Right. And I think there's enough predictive utility in the paradigm that even if it's wrong, whatever that even means, it's worth reifying anyway, because it's, it's a, it's a useful lens and construct to be able to observe the world, to be able to explain dynamics, to be able to improve the quality of the decisions that we're making in our organizations and acknowledging our whole human selves, like bringing our whole selves to our organizations, to the world and figure out how do we sort of pivot the paradigm of the world where we're, where we're optimizing for the well-being of life. You know, I mean, it's like, like we get so obsessed with, well, what does the machine want? (laughs) Who cares about what the machine wants? Right. It's like the machine is the one thing that doesn't actually have feelings that doesn't actually care. It's a, it's a, artificial construct that's sitting out in their minds that we're that we're optimizing for this this entity what does the business want and i think with technology advancing we're we're hitting this fork in the road non-linear shift of our times where culturally we're going to have to choose what type of future do we want to build what do we want to optimize for what is quality how do we bring these two sides together that see things in a different way that are playing different games that are both engaged and excited about this dream and vision and bring the world together around what is the shared dream that we want to create? I think ultimately the organizations that are able to figure this out, that are able to behave more as emotionally responsive, living, breathing organizations um, are the organizations that will probably unlock productivity or real value much faster than organizations that operate as machines or think they operate as machines. So I think that being able to wrap our heads around this question, and I, I really admire the way you put it, is really at the heart of kind of getting to the next level, if you will, for many organizations. So I think this kind of understanding is really fundamental. Speaking of uh, emotional uh, metaphors, uh, there's one I've been giving a talk about called Your Emotional API, where I'm using API as a metaphor for the way emotions behave at an individual level. It's it's not really complete, and I don't think it applies particularly to this the context in which we've been talking about feelings here, mm-hmm. which is sort of it's a very different level. But I just wanted to throw that out there. But I think what's really interesting is one of the, a phrase that you used earlier in the episode was talking about the processes inside a company as living systems, living processes. And it's a a subtle change in in name from thinking about it as a system of living things to a living thing, living system. But to me, that really, really changes my thinking about how the system works and how it's going to behave. Like the fact that it's made up of living things you know, makes it a living system. And to me, just that change in vocabulary actually makes me think about it differently. So I found that really interesting. I started to look at it differently because I thought, well, if it's a living system, there are a couple of attributes I might look for. I might look for its pulse. What's the pulse of an organization? What does that mean? What is the blood pressure? 
for an organization like that. If I start using these living metaphors when I'm approaching an organization, that changes the way I look at it. And I start dropping some of the framework-specific approaches that I, I normally go to and some of the mechanical approaches. And I start asking questions about what is the emotional pulse of this organization? What is the product pulse of this organization? Those sorts of questions. And how do I measure that? How do I change it? How do I influence it? And I don't have all the answers here. This is why I start talking in woo terms, because I don't know. You know, this is where I think there's some really exciting work to be done, where you can start asking these questions and finding out how we can influence or, or help people and organizations flow better. Tom, I have a question for you. Have you ever heard of cybernetics? Yes. So Stafford Beer uh, has a thing he calls the viable system model. And you were talking about what is the pulse or the heartbeat of a system. And the viable system model is an attempt to take an analogy from the human nervous system and apply it to how organizations are structured. And so he talks about organizations have their sensory inputs, the systems that are in touch with the external world. So that could be your sales team, your customer support team, software engineers write code, and that goes out into the world. And then at the top level, you have the brain, and you have every level in between. And how do messages flow, how does that move around the system? Some has to go from one system to another. Some has to go up, travel up the system, and then back down the system. And how does all that work? And and this idea of like, what is the pulse of a system reminds me a lot of that. Cool. So he, I, You know, I wasn't familiar with that. So he talks specifically about um, algodonic communication, which is pain and pleasure uh, signals. So pain and pleasure signals go up the organization to the brain. Then the brain goes, that hurts. We got to stop doing that. And then some sort of instruction comes back down. Awesome. I'm going to check into that. This has been very exciting. So at the end of the show, we usually do reflections. Why don't we strive to like, see if we can summarize our reflection into like a punchy, really good sentence. Like if we can get off, if I left with one thought, what would it be? kind of reflections I think would be kind of nice today because there's been so many things. I feel like one of the best things we can do is like make an awesome sentence. Okay. Okay. I got one. I got one. Got one. <laughs> when the language gets wooey, the ideas might be newy. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> All right. I'm going to need like two sentences, but I'll, I'll, I'll try. Tom, you talked about quality as being an, an emotional response. Jerry Weinberg said that quality is value to some person. And both of these mean that quality is individual. It's personal. Many different people can have different, uh, different definitions of quality for them. There's no one universal thing that is quality for this system. It is subjective and intersubjective. And this, for me, is very much in line with this idea of understanding how emotion flows through a system that's made of humans. A lot of organizations think more or less carefully about how other forms of information flow. But I don't know of any that actually consciously pay attention to how emotion flows in a system. In a system that's built of humans, there's no way that that's not happening. 
Uh, and I think that we all would do well to be more aware of what that means for our teams, for our customers, for our definition of quality as a measure of our system and all sorts of things. Cool. My sentence, I think, would be that the best ideas are often found in uncomfortable places. That's like mine, but less silly. <laughs> I, I cheated by making mine a run-on sentence. <laughs> systems of living things are living systems. Very pithy, thank you. Janelle, are you feeling pithy? One of the earlier things you said about how you come into an organization and the first thing you do is kick back and observe, sit in a room and do discovery. Don't assume you understand already when you walk into a room and let that understanding be emergent through the process of observation. And all of these models and lenses and ways of seeing can help us better understand the dynamics in those systems. But in order to be able to see those differences from where we are already, we have to get to a state where we can just kick back and observe. Very cool. Awesome. Thank you, everyone. Thank you for what was a wonderful conversation, all of you. Greater Than Code is listener-supported and you can become one of those supporters by joining us at our Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash greater than code where you can give at any level per month and you will be given an invite into our private Slack community where you can meet uh, and speak with all the panelists and some of the guests and all the other really interesting people that love listening to Greater Than Code every week. Mm-hmm.